Welcome to the Human Performance Podcast. Here we talk about everything to do with human performance and how leaders and organizations can get the best out of themselves and their people. I'm your host, Alex Young. My guest this week on the podcast is Sarah Furness. Sarah is a helicopter pilot and air safety and human factors trainer at the Royal Air Force. She's taking her experience and now applying that to mindfulness and cognitive coaching for executives and high-performing organizations at her company, WellBeIt. She helps tough, busy people to feel as strong as they look. We talk about everything from mindfulness to what it means to have a beginner's mind in your organization and to get the best out of your team and employees. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. How are you? Very well, indeed. Welcome to the Human Performance Podcast. It's really, really great to have you on. Um, I was amazed when I was reading through your background um, and your blog and website, which is amazing. Um, But rather than me telling everyone about you, uh, it'd be great if you could introduce yourself uh, to everybody listening. Uh, Well, thank you very much, Alex. Um, Yeah, so I'm Sarah Furness, um, well-be-it coach, currently still in the Royal Air Force, so serving helicopter pilots in the RAF, having done 20 years. Um, But I've changed direction and decided I want to launch myself into well-being, wellness and performance. Um, it has become my sort of new passion, partly because of the amazing people that I've worked with in the military and I've discovered um, that I can help them. Um, so that's kind of where I am today and I'm delighted to be talking to you about my experience in the RAF and also you know, with my uh, coaching clients. So the, the Royal Air Force, um, I mean, even just getting into uh, to, to be in the Royal Air Force is a massive achievement. Um, but, you know, reading some of your background, you've served on tours, you've done some incredible stuff. Um, I was wondering, you know, specifically, could you speak to your experiences of um, both training and, and flying in the Royal Air Force around the sort of you know, human performance and, and team based and human factors that you sort of experienced on that journey? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it takes a long time to train um, to be a pilot, um, maybe just about as long as a doctor, <laughs> uh, depending on how many holes you have to go through. But I think you, probably probably harder than being a doctor. Oh, much harder, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it's um, in the Air Force, I don't know if it's the same in doctoring, but we have quite sort of what we call constructive feedback. Um, but, you know, you, from a very early age, when you're probably still quite immature, I know I certainly was, you're getting quite robust feedback. Um, and of course, there's always this fear that you're going to get chopped. Um, and I actually started out um, trying to fly fast jets and I flew the Hawk, which most people will know as a red arrow, um, and then sort of ran out of talent, really, and ended up flying helicopters, which I was hugely happy to do. But I suppose as a young person being thrown into that, um, you're very quickly kind of facing up to your limitations Um which is quite a humbling experience. I'm not necessarily sure I had the, um, the kind of maturity to deal with that. Um, and then of course, there's also a huge amount of emphasis on human factors because you, know, you kind of need to be on your A game um, every day. So you want to be um, you know, eating, sleeping, exercising, all that kind of good stuff that you have to do. Aircrew tend to be overly obsessed with fatigue and how much sleep we have, which is why we all have to stay in hotels wherever we go anywhere, because we must have a good night's sleep. Um, so that's it's a really kind of 
the sort of human frailty and human performance is something that we're very alive to in the RAF, particularly in the flying world. And I guess just taking a step back, uh, you mentioned that this was something that you entered into when you were um, quite young. What was your, I suppose, motivational factors um, for going into to something like uh, not just flying, but, but also military aviation? Uh, 100% it was Top Gun. Um, and anyone who <laughs> is lying, everybody joined the Air Force because of Top Gun. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I suppose joking aside, um, yeah, the military, it does, you know, it's a very exciting life. You're going away all the time on tours, going to hot, sandy places um, where you might be in danger, which is incredibly exhilarating. Um, so it's that sort of excitement, adrenaline kind of thing. Um, and I think also um, I I just wanted to fly. I wanted to, I mean, you don't really know when you're young if you're going to get on with it, um, but I just knew I kind of wanted to fly. So that's what I did. And I was incredibly focused to that um, agenda all the way through school and, and university. Um, for anyone listening who might not know about uh, military training or, or even actually learning how to uh, you know, fly a plane. Can you just speak to, I guess, the, the you know, the length of that journey and, and sort of what you need to do to, um, to to become completely sort of proficient? Yeah, I mean, it changes all the time. Uh, and we change the way the flying training um, is structured. But broadly speaking, you start off on something like, um, you know, a, a grob or, a, you know, a little light aeroplane, having been through officer training. So you fly on that and then they'll decide which stream you're going into so they'll decide if you're going to go to fast jets helicopters or you know big heavy aircraft um and obviously the fast jets are at the top of the pecking order um so everybody wants to go fast jets but you'll get streamed depending on how well you did um in your light aircraft flying um and then you'll go down your stream so for me i went fast jets um and then um had to start retraining again on helicopters and then you finish your training and go to the front line and then that's when you become sort of combat ready and you will be sort of going out to war zones basically that process for me took six years wow i mean it's it's, it's very interesting because um i mean we've we were sort of speaking just before um we went live on the podcast but we've got a number of um people with military backgrounds in in our company and a lot of it is, I suppose, the, the training and, and the human factors elements of the trainings, especially, are, are very, very similar to to medicine. And one of the things that you know we've spoken about on on the podcast before, and I always harp on about, is there is that um, period of when you finish your training and you are effectively signed off or you're told that you are now good to go to the front line whether that's um to a a, a battle zone or, or military theater or um an operating theater in in the case of medics actually when you're put into those environments of, of high stress and emotion it's very very difficult for your training which is typically done in safe environments to really effectively translate and prepare people for for that that sort of emotional element. Um, could, could you speak a little bit about how your, um, I suppose, training before you you were sort of deployed was like uh, compared to what it was actually like being in, um, you know, high pressure environment? Yeah. Okay. Good question. Um, 
So we get taught about human factors, like you say, um, and actually we take a lot of lessons from the NHS about things like confirmation bias and that kind of thing. Um, but you're talking as well about the kind of emotional um, side of it. And I, I mean, I can't say I really remember any kind of training on that. Um, and that's not having a poke at, um, at the RAF in any way um, or form, but I think it tends to be, you know, our emotional training is probably the fact that we're there for each other and that we have this tremendous camaraderie and we go through it with each other and we understand each other. Um, and that's probably the kind of emotional support that we have before we sort of pop out onto a war zone uh, and find ourselves dodging bullets, as it were. Um, so I think that's what the military has in abundance. And they did a survey, another survey, sorry, a study on mindfulness in the military. And what they found was that team mindfulness, which is really just another way of saying camaraderie, i.e. being aware of each other, um, is probably one of the greatest sort of weapons that we have in our armory. Um, but I don't know if that was very well understood when I was going through flying training, if I'm really honest. Certainly I didn't understand it. It's interesting. I think it's it's one of those unspoken elements of team performance where I think it, it is something that's quite difficult to, to quantify and often it's taken for granted in any teams. And, and I think people listening, whether you've been in um, a sports team or whether it's uh, in, in your current business role, often you will just naturally perform better with um, teams that, that you either, you know, get on well with the individuals um, or as Sarah's, you know, talking about the, the mind, you know, the, the mindfulness element and, and um, that sort of pulling together and, and team support. Um, but it, it is very difficult to quantify. Um, I, I mean, I, th I think the, the other interesting point is, um, around the actual technical training parts of, of aviation, especially not, not just in the military. Um, but for things like um, simulation training and how you can try and evaluate people before they get into real world environments, aviation has, has always been one of the real leaders, whether it's with um, things like um, sim, uh, sort of physical simulators um, or whether it's things like virtual reality technology and, 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 and those types of technologies where you can put people into these repeatable scenarios uh, in a safe environment. Um, I was wondering if, if you could just share some of your experiences of the types of training you had when you were going through, um, but yeah, I guess both both your aviation training and your military training. Um, yeah, so when we are um, preparing to go, you know, on operations, on military operations, uh, spaces like Iraq and Afghanistan, um, we do a lot of simulation training, like you say, and whether or not but if that's in a, if I'm going out to do a flying role, we do a lot of that in a simulator. But also we have um, kind of uh, warfighting simulators as well. I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to talk about here. Um, but we, you know, any kind of set up mock um, headquarters um, almost. So, um, and I think they call it rock drills. Um, some some Marines will know what that means. Um, and sort of red teaming and wargaming and all that sort of stuff. So we do an awful lot of that. And I think the idea is that, you know, you train hard, fight easy. So the harder you train um, when you are under that pressure um, and when you are, you know, maybe afraid for your life, you don't, you almost don't have to think it becomes instinctive because it's been trained into you. Um, so, and again, sort of going back to the emotional support, if you are in a scenario where that's kind of draining your emotional capacity, 
um, it doesn't matter so much because you've kind of got that muscle memory and that automatic reaction that's been trained into you. So that's that's what all of the pre-deployment training will be geared towards, is making sure that we're as safe as possible when the chips are down and things aren't going very well for us. And even, even in that pre-deployment training, I mean, it sounds, even when you're describing it, potentially very, very stressful, like some elements of, of healthcare or, or other, uh, other sort of you know, high-performance environments, even, even in training. Did you see many people burning out even during training or quitting? <laughs> um, yeah, some, yes, I have. Um, and that's, again, another reason why I decided to change direction, because I think um, certainly, I can't comment on other industries. All I know is military, but I know that we tend to be very can-do. Uh, we have incredibly high expectations for ourselves, and we don't really have an off button. Um, and during a time when we should be perhaps spending time with our family, because we're not going to see them for six months, we're actually going out on various exercises and ramping up our training. So a six-month deployment actually turns into a year where you're not really at home with loved ones. And obviously, as you get older and you have mortgages and children, you know, other people start to feel the strain too. And I think, um, you know, what I've learned while I've been teaching air safety is um, what I often say to people is your job is not to say no, but you should have it in your vocabulary. Because I think in the military, we sort of dislike that word and we kind of want to be forward leaning, which I think is a tremendous attribute, but it also can lead to people just sort of pushing and pushing and pushing until they've got nothing left to give. And in, in your current role on uh, where you're dealing with things like air safety, I mean, again, uh, the aviation industry has been a, you know, probably the global leader on, on safety, really. Um, obviously, um, things that have become synonymous like the black box are um, that that's all kind of come from aviation. Uh, could you um, speak to a, a little bit about what your role sort of involves with that and what you're doing on a day to day basis in, in um, aviation and the military? Yeah, so I actually teach for the Military Aviation Authority and I teach air safety courses. And, um, you know, like we do like to think that we are um, hopefully, you know, world leaders in terms of safety. And we take our air safety culture incredibly seriously. And I know that the team that I work with are very passionate about it. Um, and, you know, we want, uh, we're in the business of making sure that. Um, people don't die if they don't have to. Unfortunately, in the military, it's going to happen. So you cannot um, completely eliminate risk. You just can't do it. And people are going to get things wrong. Um, so the key is that we're learning from our mistakes and we have this kind of growth mindset and this learning culture as opposed to a blame culture, which gives us permission to make mistakes. But then crucially, what do we do with that? How do we learn from that? How do we make sure um, that we don't, you know do that again or that we can reduce the amount of risk to you know as low as reasonably practicable and i think you know I, there's a number of things there that uh, we're, we're going to um, touch on in a second um but but just taking a step back i mean i think one thing i, I just want to pull out from that is um healthcare in particular over the last sort of you know 10 to 15 years in the uk and i think globally across a number of industries one of the key words with translating safety uh, into organizations and actually sharing it between sectors, one of the buzzwords has been transparency. And um, in, certainly in the UK, there were a number of sort of investigations into um, hospital death statistics and um, errors were actually um, 
not necessarily that that some of these these um, hazardous events have been covered up by anybody, but they weren't being adequately reported um, either at a, a local, regional, or national, certainly not global level. Um, and I think that's one of the things that um, aviation, in particular, is very very good at doing. Um, perhaps partly because in in uh, you know, commercial aviation, you can't really um, not share what's happened if if um, there's a there's an aviation accident. Um, have you seen that side of, of sort of the reporting and, and sharing knowledge across industries change during your tenure? Um, yeah, um, culture is one of those things that you don't notice it changing around you when you then look back. You think, oh yeah, no, we we have moved on. I mean, I would say that I've always felt very lucky to be in the Air Force. I've always felt like it's quite progressive. You know, also in, just in terms of like gender uh, and the way that you know we have equal opportunities. I, I think. Um, it, it's quite progressive in that area as well. So um, I, I do think that, you know, we are very lucky, but I would never want to rest on our laurels. And I think that we tend to, um, we are certainly the direction of travel is to move away from that blame culture, which is going to completely undermine any transparency um, and to move towards that just culture. And making sure people understand that just culture doesn't mean blame free. So if you do make a mistake, it doesn't mean that if you put your hand up, there's going to be no consequences because we do have to learn from it. And if you've been negligent, then there is a a personal responsibility that one needs to and should take. Um, But I think certainly that's the direction of travel. I think we are, uh, we have improved and I think we could do better than we are today. Really, really interesting. And and I think, um, really good to, to get your opinion on on what you're now doing which is is obviously translating all of your um, amazing um, experience and, and and knowledge around uh, human performance and, and coaching and training um, high performance people into coaching and training organizations and and people outside of of the military and aviation um before we ju- jump into that i was just wondering obviously you're you're working with people at the moment both um on an individual and, and team basis in the military and outside what what are some of the the traits of high performance people that you think put them at risk of things like either burnout or or even just not performing at, at their highest ability? Yeah, um, it's something I'm really really passionate about, and again, it's you know one of the major reasons that I changed direction, um, and I you know include myself in this number, but I think there is a bit of a culture of kind of man up wet pants <laughs> in the military. And I- <laughs> Think to a degree that's entirely healthy because you know I've, I've read uh, listened to one of your earlier podcasts about sometimes talking about something might feel like the right thing to do but you can kind of overdo it and start dwelling on things and picking things apart so that they become um you know you sort of turn a um a molehill into a mountain but equally I think we come from a culture where um it's not still not that usual to speak up um, I think, particularly Eku, who I used to work with, you know, we've, we we probably have quite high expectations for ourselves. We want to present this image of being very macho, whether you're male or female. Um, and that makes it very hard to talk about difficulties because we see that as a vulnerability. We see that as weakness. Now, I do think we're moving on, um, but I do think that you know, that sort of culture can lead to people just kind of bottling it up and, and you know, 
in my time in the REF, I have seen people have fallen over and they're the last people that you would expect that to happen to because they you kind of they project this image and, and the truth is they've just been struggling they're kind of like the swan um looking all serene on the top of the water but they're sort of paddling away furiously at the bottom and I think a lot of us feel like that if I'm honest and I think a lot of us have a fear of failure um and my wish for people is that they understand that it's okay and they give themselves permission to not be perfect all the time yeah, I completely agree. And I think um, certain types of professions, you know, certainly the ones that, that we are in, so, so military, uh, aviation, uh, certainly healthcare, especially surgery, um, and uh, people who go on to sort of start businesses, it, it is it's a certain type of, of personality type that goes into that. And it's often, um, you know, especially for, for company founders or team leaders or anyone who's taking a risk, and um, putting themselves into a position where they are um, taking on that risk, um, it, it does lead to, to you know significant stress and things like that. And um, I think it's it's very very important that um, people you know speak up. Certainly when they're struggling with things, and, and going back to what we were talking about a second ago, is also involving the people around them, so their team members, and, and sharing things amongst their team, and, and making sure that everyone is supported. Um, what are some of the things when you start working with people in uh, you know, business sectors or, or you start coaching organizations that, that you sort of do initially to, I suppose, get buy-in to, uh, to coaching and training and, and supporting people within organizations? Yeah, I mean, uh, and I teach this on all of my courses. Um, um, we mentioned before the podcast about this Thriving at Work paper that was commissioned. I think it's something like £46 billion per year that the government, not the government, sorry, the UK spends just on um, absence or presenteeism or any kind of loss of output just because of mental well-being, not even physical well-being, just because of mental well-being. So, um, and that's, you know, so if you've kind of got your corporate head on and you think, how can I make money? Well, invest in your people. Um, But in terms of my sphere and the safety critical elements. You know, we've got lots of people, whether they're flying aircraft, whether they're air traffic controllers, whether they're fixing aircraft. Why, why would you not want them to be on their A game when they are doing safety critical roles? So if they're not feeling kind of, they don't have the mental capacity because it's being drained because they're stressed, they, you know, they're dealing with lots of uncertainty, which is really common in the military does it not follow that they might not make the best decisions that they could do? Because, you know, we've only got so much resource. And if we don't fill that resource up and invest in that well-being, then we're not going to make as um, as good decisions as we could do. So I always say, you know, it's not just that it's the right thing to do. It's the smart thing to do because we will be better at what we do and potentially save lives as well. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think... Um there's 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 a huge benefit from adopting not just i suppose uh, a culture of coaching within your organization but actually a culture of support and of um really highlighting um your your people needs and your people plan and, and how you're actually supporting your individuals to to power up your entire organization um what what are sort of uh, you know for anyone listening what are some of the I suppose, practices or, or, or guidelines or things that you might do with some of the people that you work with to, to effectively sort of power them up in that domain? 
Yeah, well, as you know, I'm a huge fan of mindfulness. Um, you have to be a little bit careful how you use that in the military because some people sort of start squirming on their seat a bit when you talk about mindfulness. Um, but you can call it mental fitness um, if you like. But I think the first starting block and the foundation is mindfulness. Um, you know, in terms of if you're only interested in performance, mindfulness is going to increase the neural pathways in your brain. It's going to increase the connectedness so it can connect the sort of logical left with the creative right. Um, it can help with emotion regulation. Um, it increases our heart rate variability. Studies have been done on pilots about this, which means that we can deal with stress better. And why wouldn't you want that for people that you're putting in stressful situations? So there's loads and loads of scientific evidence that mindfulness can increase our performance and increase our ability to work under pressure. But also, you know, the attitudes of mindfulness, things like beginner's mind and all that kind of stuff, mindful of, mindfulness of vision, team mindfulness, like one word can be applied in so many different ways. Um, and that's the, that's the thing I'm trying to infiltrate, if you like, um, but maybe not always calling it that because then people will probably switch off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's a great point. I mean, I think, um, I think often people don't realise the actual performance benefits because certainly um, I'm aware of a number of papers um, in, you know, specifically in the training sector uh, were doing things sim simply like uh, a, a sort of you know five to ten minute meditational mindful exercise before you go into uh, what is effectively a uh, knowledge retention or learning task will improve your your actual kind of short-term memory of, of topics so there's a number of studies that have been done in the, the kind of education domain around that um, and then actually reciprocally um, we actually we have um, had some some studies published about um, actually, you know, improved training leading to reduction in, in stress and anxiety um, for uh, your your people. So um, I think having what is effectively like an integrated training approach, where you've got high quality uh, technical training as well as human performance training and um, mindfulness and, and let's just call it resilience training for want of a better word. Um, it, you know, in, in my kind of opinion, that's what all um, HR or learning development um, uh, sort of departments and organizations and CEOs should really be looking at for their people, um, especially, you know, looking at, uh, at this current period where um, there's been a huge change to working environments. Um, some people are, are now at home and in stressful environments with children, um, and you've got to take sort of extra care about uh, looking after their well-being when they're, they're not um, in an office and, and their whole routine's been disrupted and you can't go to the gym. So that, that in itself has, has completely sort of turned, I suppose, the, um, the, the business world's approach to, to looking after employees on its head. Have, have you seen any sort of repercussions of, of COVID and, and the lockdown on um, or any of the clients you've been working with? Yeah, well, that's why I started doing uh, classes for everyone during lockdown. So I've been doing Wellness Wednesday, um, uh, which by the way is, is open to anybody, but mostly it's been a military audience. And you know, one of the first things I did was how do you kind of establish a, uh, a mindful working practice that you can do at home? Because the temptation now is we've got so many distractions at home and lots of people um, have been reporting a lack of ability to focus or a lack of motivation. Um, some people are thoroughly bored, some people are completely frazzled. So one of the first things I did 
was to talk about how multitasking um, is a terrible idea. <laughs> and there's lots of reasons why I can't, our brain can't actually do two things at once, even if you think it can. Um, and it's completely counterintuitive, but actually if you try this unitasking where you just give yourself one thing to do at a time, um, which can be difficult when you've got children running around, I understand. But if you can try and separate your tasks and do them more mindfully, you will be more productive. And um, I think it's something like 40% your production goes up by if you try to work more mindfully and just do one thing at a time. So wow. that was the sort of thing that I've been working with is, is that kind of thing. And very much giving facts and figures in the science, um, because again, military people tend to be quite analytical. And if you sort of go in with a sort of wishy-washy, let's all do yoga, that may not be so receptive, but when they understand the science behind it, they realize that, oh, maybe I should give this a go. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think it's um I, I think one of the one of the interesting um, side effects certainly that I've noticed and a number of um, I guess you know my peers have noticed in in healthcare and also business is that with the kind of disruption to people's normal routines, especially with things like not uh, no longer being able to go to the gym or um, you know having to change people's exercise regimes or not being able to see friends. Um, that you know, focus is is really one of the things that that takes a hit first, and people become very very challenged at um, really just you know just getting stuff done. And I think anyone listening can probably sympathise that things have tended to you know go very very quickly during lockdown, and people don't know sort of you know what day is 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 what. Um, what are sort of you know I guess some of your top tips on things like you know remaining focused? What could people do? Um, in this current environment or if they're in any similar environment to, to really make sure they stay focused on what they're doing? Yeah, sure. Well, again, the first thing I'd say is um, if you're struggling to, to focus, then the first thing you should do is give yourself uh, permission, you know, forgive yourself um, because being annoyed at yourself is not going to help. You're just adding extra strain. So this is really normal. There are lots of statistics out there by the Office of National Statistics that are reporting this kind of thing. So we are all feeling it in some way. Um, but I do have to say, you know, I like you, I really, really rate meditation. And the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning um, is I've deliberately moved my phone and my devices away from my bed um, so that I don't just mindlessly reach for the phone and start scrolling. Um, and I take five mindful breaths just to sort of set my intention for the day to do things at my pace. Um, and then I write down in my diary the things I'm going to do and I write blocks of when I'm going to go and do them. And if I've got a presentation that I'm preparing, I'll put my phone out of sight. So just really removing those distractions can be really helpful. But also understanding, you know, I'm homeschooling at the moment. So I've got a delightful five-year-old um, who's constantly pulling for my attention. And there's only so much you can do. But what's within your control is just removing those distractions. Now, there are also great meditations you can do um, on focusing. So you can focus on the sounds close in sounds far out and then choose maybe one sound to focus on there's lots of you know um, headspace balance all that kind of stuff out there does them I have a meditation as well but what that's doing is it's training your brain to focus on one thing and because of neuroplasticity the more we practice that the better we get at it so it's just about removing those distractions and then increasing that kind of um that muscle memory if you like in your brain to be able to focus yeah, I, I think it's so, so important. I mean, I've, I've got a similar routine where um, I wake up early and I, I um, have a, a, a sort of 
checklist of things that I do, whether that's sort of reflecting on things I'm kind of grateful for or uh, doing some mindful meditation and, and then doing exercise as well. That kind of sets me up for the rest of the day. And I think, as you say, doing the most um, important or vital tasks early certainly is the thing that sort of works works for me and then leaving any uh, you know phone calls or conversations for later on in the day perhaps when you're a little bit more sort of sleepy um is 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 often one of the things that i talk to sort of our team about um what, one of the things you mentioned earlier was um the beginner's mind and it's something that i am a massive advocate of uh for both for myself and and for our company um we mentioned actually just before we um, we started recording, um, one of the first kind of, I guess, uh, sort of self-development books that I read was Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind um, by Shunryu Suzuki, uh, which actually I've just got a 50th anniversary copy of um, for my birthday. So I've recently reread it. Um, but I guess, you know, for anyone who's not familiar with um, the concept of a beginner's mind. Could you just speak to that um, and, and sort of explain, you know, why that's important, how it relates to everything you've been talking about? Yeah, sure. And obviously you're all over this too, so feel free to jump in. But um, I just, and I actually just did a session um, on beginner's mind. And ultimately it's almost impossible to have a kind of original thought. We are very much informed by our lived experience. So we will see a situation and our memory will tell us, you know, what it's most similar to. And then subconsciously, we're creating expectations. Drive down the same road every day, maybe not quite so much at the moment. Um, but it ends up being that you, you've sort of predetermined the outcome because you're not approaching it with a beginner's mind. And it's really, really normal. I mean, it's kind of a survival thing, actually. So we shouldn't be hard on ourselves about this. But if we can approach it more with a beginner's mind, i.e. as if seeing it for the first time and understanding that even if it's the 50th time, this moment right now is unique and just really being present and really trying to dislocate those expectations and just being genuinely curious, um, then actually, again, that's great for creativity. It really opens up your mind. Um, and I'm lucky enough to have a five-year-old. If anyone else has got young children, just watch what they do because they, they're brilliant at this. Um, and they haven't formed any assumptions about it. Um, and we reflected on this as a group. And you know, one of the ways that you can incorporate that into the workplace is when you get new people into your team, that's essentially um, one way of looking at beginner's mind because for them, it's a new experience. So you know, getting that insight from them and being open to it as opposed to telling them uh, what to expect can be really valuable. So it's quite counterintuitive, but there are ways that we can learn um, to really cultivate that beginner's mind. And it can be hugely valuable in the workplace as well as at home. I, I completely agree. And I think if, if I'm ever trying to explain it to somebody who's, who doesn't have a clue what I'm talking about, I think the, uh, the quote, hopefully I get this right, is um, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the experts, there are few. And I think that's very, very true. You know, if, if you, especially in... Um, you know, sales, if you're selling into big corporate organizations, one of the, the main barriers um, is just adoption and convincing people that any type of new or exciting thing is going to deliver return on investment and should basically be used uh, by them. And often um, one of the blockers there is just convincing people who've done things that, you know, the same way for many, many years. And, and that's, that's worked for them. Then convincing that something new 
needs to be adopted and is useful and and, and is going to benefit them is hugely hugely difficult um and equally if uh, any organization is sort of um trying to get their team to be more proactive or to really um solve problems as you know every single organization wants team members and employees that, that think for themselves and, and solve things creatively the, the, you know beginner's mind is is one of the things that that can really help with that in in that if you have a diverse team or you have people from different backgrounds you have um you know whatever it is people coming at problems from different angles you're likely to get some really really interesting innovative solutions um and i guess you know especially for what we do at verti where we use some you know crazy technology to integrate into to teaching and training and things like that we always always um whenever we begin thinking about how we're going to develop something new or a new product line or tweak something we'll always take a step back and just say you know shut down any assumptions we're having and and think about you know what could we do even if it's not possible right now um and, and come of it using that beginner's mindset um i think it's incredibly valuable i mean how, how do you think you if you're teaching people that, how can you integrate that into organizations who, who might not know a huge, huge amount about it? Well, um, you know, obviously I've been running that class and I've, the last couple of weeks I've been going through all the attitudes of mindfulness and what it means and how we can cultivate a sense of it. And I think it sort of starts with education. Obviously, leadership is really important. Um, it doesn't matter what the, I mean, it does matter what the people at the bottom think, but, you know, if you want to create a culture of beginner's mind and I think that's closely related to things like growth mindsets as well um I think it needs to come from the top so I think we need to find a way to educate um the you know the, our very senior leaders um and allow them like you see to sort of like you say to sort of see the possibilities of it um and again you know one of the things my coaches came up with was when we were talking about beginner's mind was it's almost like a lack of fear of repercussions. Um, whereas a non-beginner's mind will be like, well, I don't know how that's going to end up if I do it like that. So I'm not going to try that. Um, and of course it's natural to have a fear of repercussions. And again, we're in, you know, it's a survival thing. So it's not a bad thing, but how much does that hold us back? And what I see so often is that it's not so much what we need to strive for. It's almost getting rid of the barriers that are holding us back. And that's what I want to be able to, you know, go into organisations and kind of unpick that for them and say, okay, this is how you can remove those barriers. Yeah, I, it's, it's a great point. And I think um, having these type of concepts really integrated into company culture and having that integrated into how people behave on a day-to-day basis is absolutely key to getting it adopted and getting it used throughout, you know, certainly a, a massive organisation where you've got sort of, uh, 50, 100, you know, 100,000 people plus, like whatever it is, that's going to be absolutely critical. When you work with organizations specifically, are you looking to, I suppose, integrate um, a kind of coaching methodology between departments um, so that, you know, when you are not there, that they're still sort of doing all the things you teach and train them? Um, or, or are there any other sort of things that, that you embed in in your coaches and mentees? Yeah, so I mean, the first thing I would do is I actually teamed up with a company called Wellbeing Works, and they measure psychological safety 
um, so that I can identify the specific pain points that are holding a company back. Like really commonly reported ones are people don't feel like they're in control of their work. And if you take people's choices away from them, that's incredibly debilitating, um, which is ironic given the military, we just follow orders. Um, but, you know, feeling valued, feeling like they can be a sort of dissenter, those are the sorts of things you can measure and you can find out what the pain points are. And then what I would offer is a kind of bespoke program, but it is around um, a framework that I call the conscious revolution that is designed to unpick those pain points. And for employees who might be kind of listening to this, um, who, you know, whether it's now in, in lockdown where people are remote or when people start to return back to work, what would be your kind of like, you know, top um, two or three things that they should be integrating into their sort of daily practice with regards to, to all the things we've, we've spoken about? Their top tips. Um, well, I do believe that mental well-being is the sort of foundation on which you build performance. So although I might say to someone, I'm going to help you increase your performance, really what I'm going to start off with um, focusing on is that emotional and mental well-being. And if I could if I could give everybody a gift, it would be the gift of self-worth and feeling valued. Um, and usually what holds us back is a fear of failure or a fear of rejection. So I would want people to first of all not be too hard on themselves because it's really common and all of the coaches I work with you know, sort of say similar things and at some stage we're all a little bit afraid of letting someone or ourselves down so the first thing is to realize that that's really normal um, and then to understand that you can choose to hold on to that belief or you can choose to let it go um, and mindfulness is the tool that I use so if you were to do nothing else today from this podcast, I would say, please take mindfulness really seriously. Um, it's not clear to me, not knowing you, how this will benefit you, but I can guarantee that it will. Um, and there are so many ways I can use that tool. So that would be my kind of number one thing. Um, and the benefit of that is letting go of the things that are holding you back in order to you know, really let you just be the awesome person that you are because people you know human beings are awesome and I just want them to be able to realize their full potential by getting rid of the things that are weighing them down very cool and and um just to kind of uh, finish up so I mean we, we always talk about um amazing feats of human performance um on the end of our podcast do you have any examples from again either your background or, or anything external um, that that you really kind of hold dear as, as something that's just blown your mind and, it, and is phenomenal with regards to kind of human performance and development? Um, yeah, so I was thinking about this and I, I feel bad that I'm not going to come up with a military example because there are so many fantastic, amazing people in the military that have done amazing, brilliant things. But actually the thing that really sent shivers up my spine um, was when I went to a Wellbeing at Work conference at the NEC and again, um, it was this company called Wellbeing Works, they measure psychological safety. So I hope they don't mind if, we, if I talk about their example. But um, there was a doctor called Dr. Malik Ramadan um, who worked at St. Bart's and they were really struggling to um, you know, service their patients. Um, and they were struggling with the, is it four hours you have as a target to get people through A&E? Yeah. And they had their, their version of auditors come in and they kind of really bombed their um, audit. 
So um, Wellbeing Works went in and said, right, let's find out what's going wrong here. And sort of the number one thing that they found was that the staff did not feel valued. And Dr. Malik talked about it and said, well, I don't understand that because I tell my staff all the time that they're brilliant. Um, but in the study, it came out that there were things like um, they'd been asking for lockers for the last 18 months and they, they still didn't have any lockers and, you know, purses were getting nicked and things like that. Or they'd been asking for the, the um, protective doors um, to be fixed and, and that hadn't quite happened yet. And then someone had sort of broken out of the site cord and thrown acid over the staff. Fortunately, it was water in the end, so they weren't harmed. But their point was like, you say this, but what are you doing that allows us to feel valued? Because actually it's the little things um, that you can do that really kind of speaks volumes about our worth. And again, that's why I come back to like the, the big thing everyone's searching for, I think, is self-worth. And Dr. Malik says he implemented all of the changes. Um, and not only were people happier, they were making better decisions in operating theatres. The nurses were making better decisions and all that sort of stuff. And he said, and I'll never forget it, he said, being nice saved lives, um, which just kind of made me well up. I was like, wow. You know, so they were happier and people were getting better results and leaving hospital weller than they would have been um, just because they were looking after the staff and making them feel valued. It's, it, I mean, it's a great example to finish on. And I think it's, um, it's something that all organisations really need to focus on, especially in healthcare, because it's, it's so rushed and, and, and so busy and there's such a high um, number of, of doctors, nurses, uh, allied health professionals burning out globally because of the, uh, the hours that they put in. And uh, again, I'm a massive fan of, of studies and data on this, but you know, one of one of the big ones is the highest performing employees don't necessarily want to be remunerated with with pay rises or cash. Um, what they want is to know that what they're doing within an organisation is valued, and the follow on to that is exactly as you're saying, Sarah. That's got to be demonstrated by organisations. Um, in holding their opinions to a high regard and actually implementing their suggestions such that they feel that what they're asking for or um, the, uh, the, the things that they're suggesting to improve the organisation or in healthcare improve patient care are actually being not only listened to but actioned um, to, to move things forward. Because, um, again, I think I can probably speak on behalf of certainly the people we've had on the podcast in, in healthcare and some other sectors, but if you know if you're a high performing employee or, or any individual, you want to see the suggestions you make um, actually have impact within your organisation, and um, that that's really what can drive people. And, and as you say, um, improve people's uh, you know self worth and, and their sort of emotional quotient within their organisations. So I think it's a great point. Um, just to just to sort of finish up, final thing. Um, it's been fantastic speaking to you on the on the podcast. Um, work in, you know, if, if people want to reach out to you for coaching um, or for any other information, um, where can they found, find you on socials or, or the internet? Yeah, great. Well, I've got a website. It's uh, wellbeitcoach.com, but also that's my social media handle. So um, on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn, I haven't managed to drum up the enthusiasm for Twitter yet, but those are the, the socials that I'm on. And so I'm delighted to hear from anybody um and yeah as I say I do offer um 
programs to businesses but whilst lockdown is going on I am doing free sessions um, every Wednesday online and anybody is welcome so please do come along and join you can sign up for that online if you go to wellbeitcoach.com Awesome. Awesome. I'd highly recommend doing so. Um, And it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, Sarah, um, and look forward to catching up very, very soon. Thank you.